morning. Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we have uh, a salvation um, that saved us. Thank you that we have a church that helps correct and focus us. Thank you that we have a Savior who loves and cares for us. Thank you that we have a Spirit who empowers and gives us courage. Thank you, Jesus, that we can be here even this morning and learn and remember what you have done in our lives and what you will do in our lives. So, Jesus, open our hearts through the power of your Spirit. Open our minds through the power of your Spirit. Help us to hear correctly from you today. But, Jesus, we also ask that you help give us courage to obey what we hear and know. We would ask that you do this, Jesus, in your awesome and holy name. Amen. When I was in high school, uh, a lot of my stories are from high school, by the way. I didn't have the greatest high school experience, to be honest. Didn't have a lot of friends. But what friends I did have occasionally would help me study for exams or tests. Yes, I know it plays in with the theme here this morning, but... Uh, I remember studying for one test. And I remember studying for one test because I didn't study for tests. So I remember studying for this test. Um, kids, don't try this at home. But I remember studying for this test with my friend Pat. And it was studying for geotrig. I don't know what the heck I was doing in a geotrig class, but uh, basically it was the only math class in the first semester. I didn't want to do a math class in my last semester of my life in high school, so I I took geotrig, which was pretty useless because I still have no idea. I I literally got a 50. do you know what that means? That means my, my teacher was really compassionate and he passed me so I wouldn't have to take it again. There's no way I could actually get 50. But I remember studying for the final exam. And I remember racking my brain and just thinking, I can't remember all of these formulas. Like, I just can't do it. And so I would begin to ask my friend Pat, I said, so like, you know, why, where, where in a real world situation would you use this formula? Of course, he's like, real-world situation, that's not what this math is for. This math is just so that it can fill up your schedule. You don't need to learn how or why these things actually work. You just memorize the formula and you'll, you'll be fine, he said. What I found out later is I actually, my, my mom, in a, a very compassionate way, she sent me to do some tests and found I had like a learning disability, which actually, it's not a learning disability as much as it's just normal. Um, <laughs> And that was, I couldn't remember anything that I didn't understand. I don't know if any of you are like that. Right? So, like, if, if I understand it, I can remember it. That's amazing what I can remember. So, I remember thinking carefully, I could remember what college a basketball player was from because I understood that. Right? I could remember all these details. But I could not remember a formula that just didn't make sense to me. I couldn't remember that at all. Now, as I thought about that, I just thought so often in Christian, our Christian life, when we face, we're, we're told as Christians or we're told as people, just, just remember what God is like. You know, don't, don't remember why or don't think through why, you know, God is like he is or don't try and articulate it. Stay away from that. Just, just remember that, that God is good and, and everything will go away. How is that working out for you guys? Horrible. Horrible. Doesn't work that way, does it? When you begin to face 
tests, trials, when you begin to face real life, you realize, I need something concrete here. I need a real, vibrant faith in, in Jesus. And some of you are, have been so pushed in tests already, even this fall, even this summer. And you're pushed very hard, and now you're seeing, wait a second, I need to really know what I believe. And, and maybe you're looking at it from a negative perspective. You're, you're thinking how all of these things that are coming in your life, they're distracting you from learning about maybe what God is trying to teach you. But here's what I think, uh, and this is based upon what we know in First Peter. Those aren't there to distract you. Those are there to help you. This is, this is why we're going through the book of First Peter. I think it's a great book for us. I think it's a great book for us because you're either presently suffering, you have suffered, or you're going to suffer. Anyone fit in any one of those three categories? Come on, everyone's hand should be up, right? You either have suffered, you are suffering, or you're going to suffer. Some of you don't feel that you've faced a lot of tests. That's fine. Just wait a while. They'll come. We've got a connect desk that will help you learn how to suffer. Some of you have come out of some really heavy suffering in your life. And you're like, I I would like to know how to deal with this again. I wish I would have known some things before I went into my tests and my trials. Some of you are right now going, I need help this afternoon. And so I think we're, we're like in a perfect spot. To hear what Peter says, because actually the whole book of First Peter, it's written by a guy who is, number one, he's been tested severely. I mean, he was with Jesus. I don't know anyone who could grill you more. Like, can you imagine spending time with Jesus, trying to lie to him and then just watching his face as you lied to his face? And just be like, um, no, actually, I'm God and that's not true. Peter has been severely tested by his Savior. He spent face-to-face time with Jesus if, if we were to grade Peter, we would probably say he got a failing grade from the beginning half of his life, but, but we would certainly say he had passed on the basis of, of what Jesus has done in his life. And so this is a, as a letter written by someone who's talking to, preaching to the choir, right? He's, he's been there. He's a singer preaching to the choir, to use a very archaic phrase. Some of you don't even know what a choir is, so that's okay. Um, You also don't know what cassettes are, but they're coming back in. But Peter has written, he has has written a great book to to really a group of people all over Asia that he likely has never even met. It seems weird to say the kind of things he does to a group of people that he's never even met. But he's he's writing um, to people who are being persecuted and they're actually being executed for their faith. This is interesting because Peter is also being persecuted and and will be executed for his faith. And so it's really a a great book. Now, now many of us are not going to be executed for our faith yet in our life that we know of. But I believe, actually, that we're increasingly living in a culture in Canada that that we're going to be more and more persecuted for our faith. It's getting more and more difficult to just be a Christian and and think your own things. I mean, some of the things that we just hold to simply because the Bible says that they are true. Now, uh, our our culture is actually saying, no, 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 this is a human's right. You can't can't say that about these things. I could could make a long list, but that's not what the message is about. 
But we're a people that are either presently persecuted for our faith in, in terms of some testing. I, I don't believe, at least I don't think, we'll be executed anytime soon. I think that will maintain, but I've been wrong before, so you never know. But I think this is, this is a great book for us, especially as we think about kind of the future landscape of Canada where Christianity no longer holds a privileged position, but has been uh, pushed to the side. So I think it's good for us. But this morning I want you to think personally about this. I don't want you just to think of this as some big communal idea. I want you to think about the particular tests that you face. And in particular, I want you to think about some of the hopes you have. And some of the hopes that have been destroyed from your life in the process. Some of your hopes are really shallow. Like, I mean, the paper. The Calgary Sun is like, literally, the flames are in first place. I mean, okay. I'm not sure I would brag about first place after two games. But anyways, there's this great hope that the flames could really do something this year. Some of your hopes are really shallow like that. For those of you who are flames that are here, I'm not saying that's a shallow thing. There's no flames here, I don't think. (laughs) One. Some of your hopes are a little bit deeper. Your hope is that um, you've got a great job. You have a great job or you're having a hope in a great job. You're secure in that. You think that will bring great security. Some of you have had a great job and it's been pulled away from you. How is that hope working out? How secure was it? Some of you have great hope in your marriage. And you don't even think, like I'm, I'm one of those people that really doesn't even think about my marriage breaking down because I have such a great marriage. I mean, I'm not even saying that in a negative, in a positive, sorry, scratch that. I'm not even trying to butter my wife up here. I'm just saying, I don't think about it. Dinah was asked at school one day, she says, well, which parent would you go to if if your parents broke up? And she looked and she said, that's the stupidest question ever. My parents aren't going to break up. And they're like, no, 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 seriously, if they break up, she's like, no, how do you answer that? I don't believe my parents are. So there's hope for her. She's got this hope in this marriage that will last for forever. Well, that's great for me, but some of you don't have marriages anymore. Some of you put all your hope in a marriage. You put all your hope in a man, in a woman, and that hope is now gone because that man or woman didn't even call you back. Some of you have broken off engagements. Some of you have been married before. Some of you want to get married, think you're going to get married, and it's not going to work out. And I ask you, is that where your hope lies? Some of your hopes are deeper. You have hope in your retirement fund. I mean, no one even takes a second thought. This is, this is where so much of our culture's hope is. Did you notice? In, it was heartbreaking to watch, but did you notice as the flood happened, I just couldn't imagine having a hope, working my whole life, putting away all my money for a retirement fund, buying a home out in Canmore, then having that home destroyed, then having the insurance company say we're not covering it. What would you do if that was you? So maybe some of you are here this morning. That's happened to you. Is that where your hope is? I mean, you say it's in Jesus, but ultimately you just keep 
pouring your hope there. That's really when things go wrong and your day goes rotten, you don't think about Jesus. You think about, I'm going to retire and it's all going to be provided and my home is paid for. You ask any one of those people who got their home removed from them, they will tell you that sounds and seems like a mistake that we spent our whole life buying a house that no longer exists. Maybe your hope is in your insurance plan. Maybe your hope is in your health. And then that's pulled away from you. You eat well, you work out, you do all the things that everyone says you should do, and you still get cancer. Now what? Where's your hope? I want you to think about that because I don't think, in spite of the fact that what what Peter's uh, kind of context, although it's very different from ours in that there's persecution, they are a people just like us that need a secure hope. Now, as you think about those things in your life, are you not now thinking, yeah, you know what? I want a secure hope. I want to reevaluate my life and find out where is there hope that cannot be destroyed? Where is there hope that cannot be taken away? Where is there hope that will never die? I'm so glad you asked that question because that's exactly what our passage is about. Because Peter begins in a very interesting way. He actually says this whole idea of salvation is rigged. Let me define salvation for you. It's being saved. Okay? There's a few things that I have to explain here. If you're, if you're new or if you're a new Christian or not yet a Christian, I have to explain some of these things about what these things mean. But salvation describes this kind of whole process by which God saves his people. And so that immediately for some of us, some questions come up like, what do I need to be saved from? If I am saved, it assumes that I need to be saved from something. I remember going to a Christmas Eve service and one of the preachers in passing said, you know, if, if Jesus or, or if you are lost, Jesus will find you. And a little five-year-old girl who is best theologian in the house goes, I'm not lost. I don't need I don't need to be found. It's like, but that's the attitude we have sometimes. Jesus doesn't need to save me. I'm actually helping him out. Some of us are, even though we don't believe that, we're functionally thinking like that. And so salvation is, is this simple process or idea that God saves people. And what we call that process is our salvation. Our salvation. It's funny how that word seems to come up in general culture. When we say our, our salvation is a retirement fund. You know, you'll hear those kind of words. Like what saves us is this. Our salvation comes from here. But Peter says our salvation comes from Jesus. And the very way that he designed salvation actually gives us hope. So it's not just the, 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 uh, the news about this. It's the way in which salvation even works that gives us and secures us with such a great hope. Let me talk through how Peter understands salvation. Peter is uh, a kind of a, an upfront, in-your-face guy. If you read through the Gospels, you will see Peter get in the face of even Jesus. He tries to pull Jesus aside and kind of reorder his life. And Jesus actually pulls him aside and reorders Peter's life. But that's another story. But, but Peter is so upfront that in the first four verses, he basically gives everything that you need to know about being a Christian. It's amazing. I mean, he's, he is to the point. He does not waste time. 
And so the first thing that, that Peter says, um, he, he says it in 1 and 2, and then he kind of goes back through it and explains it a bit. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Hold it right there. Do you see that in the text? Verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Sometimes we get hung up on this very issue. He has caused us. He has caused us to be born again. Think carefully through that. You know what that means? That means Jesus initiates the relationship. Some of you right there are like, oh, no, 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 no. I showed up to church. I put up my hand. I got baptized. Now, Peter, Peter doesn't... This is where so many Christians fight, to be honest. We fight about this. The reason why there's so many different churches is there's so many different views on these sorts of things. And people fight about this idea. No, no, no. It was mean. And, and the other group says, no, no, no. It was God. And, and I would say, this is what Peter is saying. He has caused us to be born again. Peter doesn't do it so he can start a bunch of denominations and churches. He does it to secure us. He does it to help us by his mercy. Do you hear the love like, you don't do those kind of things except out of mercy. In, the other, in other parts of Scripture, like in places like Ephesians, Paul, who's a, who's a different guy but believes the same things, it says, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it says, He predestined us for, in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Again, some of us, this is a big hang-up. We have a problem with this. But none of us has a problem with someone else initiating a relationship with us. Very few of us, when we walk into a church, are like, I really would love to be the initiator in all of my friendships here. Anyone walk into a church going, I hope I have to do all the initiating. Have you ever done that? You ever walked in a store and said, I hope I'm the one who has to ask for help. And yet we get so resistant to God initiating a relationship with us. No, when we walk into a store, we're kind of like, isn't it nice when someone says, hey, how are you doing? You actually look pretty good today. You smell nice too. Is there anything I can help you with? We're like, well, I kind of like that when someone initiates and, and I can just come in and receive. Yeah, they do it for money. God does it for mercy. He has caused us to be born again. You know why this is so securing? Is because there's nothing that you can do to mess that up. This is why the gospel's called good news and not pretty decent news for good people. It's because this establishes that no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how much you think you have messed things up, God is continually initiating a relationship with you. Some of you have been coming to Urban Grace for a while, and you've been testing out this idea of Christianity, and God has been pursuing you. you don't, half the time you don't even know why you're here. You're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't get the music. Um, it's dark in there. Um, he preaches a long time. And it's inconvenient. There's other things I could do. And yet I'm going every Sunday. Do you know what that is? That is God initiating a relationship with you. He's kindly drawing you in and showing you the goodness of His grace. 
Let us not, as Christians, just throw this doctrine away like it's for fundamental people who want to be in your face. No, this is a God who loves to initiate. If you look at any healthy relationship, it is a relationship that is filled full of initiation. A good marriage, what's that filled full of? A husband who initiates leadership to his wife and cares for her and loves her and protects her. A wife who initiates compassion and kindness as he stumbles his way through that leadership. What's a friendship? Do you, do you love it when you have to be the one who texts your friend and says, do you want to go out? Or do you love it when your friend says, hey, I have nothing to do. Actually, I had something to do, but I'd really like to spend time with you. How many of you like that kind of a friendship? I love that kind of a friendship. And this is God. This is Jesus initiating a relationship with us. You see, that that brings great security and comfort right there. That means that when you came in this morning and you were struggling and you said, I don't feel like pursuing God, here is the good news of the gospel. He's already pursuing you. In spite of the fact that you struggle to pursue Him, He is continually pursuing you. It's good news. It's good news. Secondly, this is what Jesus is doing. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hold it right there. I've got to stop and talk more about this. Jesus is providing us with a living hope. It should also give us great hum- comfort that, that Jesus is, is it's living it's not dead. Now, some, sometimes we, we read that and we say, well, well, he's providing us with Jesus who is living. That's actually a true statement about the text. But there's something else going on in the text as well. And that it's saying it's a living hope, not a dead hope. It's a forward-looking hope, not a backward-looking hope. I think this is so cool because sometimes we think that our hope in Jesus Christ resides in a decision we made a long time ago. Anyone do that? How does that work? How many times have you ran into someone and said, well, they made some sort of a decision here or there, but it's not really where they are presently. You see, looking backward and anchoring our hope in a decision that we made in the past isn't actually that hopeful. It might be a little bit helpful in terms of documenting what Jesus has done. But in terms of anchoring your hope in something real, it is always best to anchor something forward-looking. That's why Peter says this is what Jesus provides you with in your salvation, a living hope, a growing hope, a hope that week after week, day after day, month after month, year after year is continually growing. So literally, as we mature as Christians, our hope at the end of our life should be so much more vibrant than at the beginning instead of the other way around. In fact, I would say that's a mark of our maturity as Christians. If you want to know if you mature as a Christian, is your desire to meet up with Jesus and see him face to face growing? Or are you getting more and more scared? You know, we have this kind of culture that really doesn't want to think about the future. Right? Why do you think credit card debt is so high? It's because people don't want to think about their future. No one would ever buy those things if they knew it would cause them $80,000 in debt. 
They're not thinking about the future. They're thinking about what? Now. That's it. They have no concept of the future. And we're a culture that's afraid to think about the future, except if the future is good. And this is the good news about Christianity, is the end is good. In fact, it's much better. And so Jesus is providing us with a living hope. And so it's not fatalistic, friends. When you are suffering, when you are be putting through tests, it is not fatalistic for you to think about what it would be like for this world to be completely redeemed by Jesus Christ and everything made right. That is not a fatalistic. You don't have to be worried that at Urban Great, well, maybe some people will, but we shouldn't be worried about other people when they say this. Boy, I'm really looking forward to heaven. We shouldn't say, well, we should get you some help. Here's the suicide line. Those aren't necessarily the same things, friends. I remember thinking, it's like I'm embarrassed to talk about heaven with some people because they, they thought that meant I didn't want to live anymore. That's not what I said. I said I was looking forward to heaven. And it's amazing. You, you, you think the, the future doesn't matter, but the deeper your trial, the more it matters. Does it not? The deeper in debt you go financially, the more you think about your future. The deeper suffering you go, the more you think about when will this end. The deeper the broken relationship, the more you think about wouldn't it be nice if my relationships were all made right. And so that's why I said if you're not there yet, friends, just wait a while. Because you're going to need some help. You're going to need some sort of secure hope. I don't think we need more past-looking Christians who say, I became a Christian when I was 12, and, and I don't even know what's happened since then. We need Christians who said, I don't know when I became a Christian. All I know is right now I love Jesus, and I can't wait to see him face-to-face. I think we should encourage that. It's okay. Peter says this secures us. You're talking about someone who's speaking to Christians who maybe are not going to live another 24 hours. That's the one thing that can encourage them. Jesus, thirdly, in that, secures that hope. Peter uses three words to describe how secure this is. I love that. He doesn't just stop at one. He uses three. An inheritance. That word inheritance comes from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God basically said, I have chosen you, and here's how you'll know that I have chosen you. I've got an inheritance for you. I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to give you security forever. They're still fighting about this in the Middle East, by the way. Did you know that? This inheritance, that's how important that was to these people. That's still a fight that goes on, and I don't believe will ever end. Because that is such a big deal, inheritance. And Peter says this, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Awesome. Say those words over in your head over and again. Here's my hope. Imperishable. What, what is imperishable? Doesn't die. Doesn't die. No one's taken this away from me, ever. Never dies. Undefiled. It's perfect. It's everything that I need. Thirdly, unfading. Doesn't get worse, gets better. 
I'm sick and tired of hearing people talk about heaven like it's this stupid place where we have to sing a bunch of songs over and over again, spread cream cheese on our bagels, and, and play harps and sit on clouds and wear white. White does not work after Labor Day. It shouldn't work after life, right? It's a joke that only my girls and my family would get. Heaven is this place that increasingly gets better and better and better. Have you ever been watching a movie and you thought it was a great movie and then a new scene happened and you were like, oh, I didn't think this movie could get any better than this. And then something else happens and this character does this and this redemption does this and you're like, wow, this is getting so good. Think about heaven like this. That's happening forever. You're like, Jesus, I didn't know you could do that. He's like, whoa, let me tell you about this. You're like, oh, that is so cool. Tell me more. Well, what about this? Think of heaven like that. Imperishable. Unfading. Undefiled. Perfect. Getting better. Can't be taken away. It should be starting to secure you in your suffering, should it not? For those of you who aren't Christians, do you not at least want this to be true? Do you not at least want this to be that secure? That's all good and fine. But Peter goes back and he says, in this you rejoice. And so that's the second part. In this you rejoice. That's what we can hope in. But now why, why the testing? So if this is so secure, why is it so hard? I've actually had that question. If God is so good, why is my life so hard? If this news about Jesus Christ is so good, then why do I have to just face all this stuff all the time? Why do I have to get up and actually read my Bible? Why doesn't it just come so naturally? And I would say this. Peter has answers for us. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuous of your faith, that's where we got the name for the series, because we wanted to bring this home week after week, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though that is tested by fire, and it, it leaves, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let me say this, why the testing? Because this is how God protects your hope. He protects your hope through your faith. And your faith is made found to be authenticated through testing. Are you starting to see how this is all coming together? Maybe not. Some of you are like, I'm not sure yet. Okay, well, we'll go through this. We can rejoice in the hope in heaven, in Jesus Christ, in being face to face, and all things being made new. We can rejoice in that. No, we don't rejoice in our trials. We rejoice through our trials. I don't know anyone who's like, man, you know what I could really use? I could really use some persecution in my life. I wonder if there is, you know, some sort of online place where I can go and send somebody to my place to persecute me for my faith. This doesn't make sense, does it? And God doesn't want that. That's why Peter said, if necessary, if necessary, he does this because what does he care about? He cares about protecting your hope. And how do you have hope? Through faith. So it's really important, not that he knows what your faith is. He knows what your faith is. It's important that you know what your faith is. 
I think sometimes we get this so mixed up. We're like, I'm going through all these tests for God so that Jesus, if he happens to come my way, can find out that I'm really pure and true. No, he knows that. Before the foundation of the world, he decided in this plan. What's he doing that for? In great mercy, he's doing it so you can see it. You know, I'm I'm a dad, and so there are certain times when I don't do things so that I can find out things about my daughter. I say certain things so that she can find out about herself. That's what a dad does. That's what a mom does. And so God is protecting our hope through our faith. God authenticates our faith through tests. So although our trials maybe are not the the same way, the same things that Peter's people are, are facing, the way that we handle them is. We still respond in the same way. Peter uses this great metaphor that should really make sense. You know, we we don't live in a in a metal smelting world. Any metal smelters out there? Do you you have any even clue what a smelting means? And no, it's not the name of a band. It's a process by which metal is purified. So somewhere, someone found out if you burn gold, you don't destroy it. You purify it. I don't know who found this out, when, can't wait to get to heaven to ask Jesus, who came up with this? And when did this happen? This is fascinating. Somehow, someone took the most precious metal on earth at the time, white gold, I believe, is more precious now, or maybe even platinum, right, honey? Um, I bought her a platinum ring for uh, engagement, not a gold because at the time it was more precious. But anyways, that aside, gold was considered the most precious metal at the time. And Peter says, okay, gold is something that at some point it does get destroyed. But what happens when you heat gold up is you actually purify it. In fact, I'm told you do it seven times to get the purest kind of gold. So you get it heated up seven times. Some of you feel like you're heated up by God. That's exactly how you feel. When, when Peter says in this, you have a fiery trial, tested by fire. Some of you are like, yeah, I can smell the burnt hair on my arm from God. And I have no idea what he thinks he's doing by burning me and testing me with fire. Not literally. Metaphorically. Because that's exactly what it feels like. You ever struck a match and it's got too close to your hand? What happens? You just, right away, you can't help it. Anything hot just feels like, get that away from me. That's our natural reaction to, to testing. Get that away from me. Don't touch me. Don't burn me. But this is what Peter says. No, no, no. Don't think of it like that. Think that this is there to help you purify your faith. Because it's your faith in Jesus Christ that is the anchor in your hope. Wayne Grudem says this about faith. And I don't think we think of it, and it seems so simple sometimes, but he says genuine faith is more valuable to God than gold because he is a God who delights in being trusted. 
I love being trusted with things. God loves being trusted. You want to bring God glory? You want to please God? This is what Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 11 says. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Can I say that again? Hopefully this sets in for us. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible, not improbable, not difficult, impossible to please God. So if you talk about God, but you don't have faith in him, he's not pleased. If you tell people about the good news of the gospel, but you don't believe the good news of the gospel and trust in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's not pleased. If you love someone, but you don't trust in God with them, he's not pleased. But I would say you can't really love without trusting. This is astounding to us, and yet, and yet we disregard our faith so often. We think we just got to get the right words, and we just got to do the right things, and we got to do the right mission. And Jesus says, you have to do it in faith or else it's not pleasing at all. That's a strong word. Some of you are like, how dare you say I'm not pleasing God? I'm not saying it. That's what the scripture says. In Romans 14.23, it says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Wow. Wow. That's a strong, those are strong words. So how much does God care about your faith? Now that we've reviewed what God thinks about faith. That's what he cares about, friends. He cares so deeply about you pleasing him that he's actually building faith in you for him so that you can please him. He pursued you to do this. He secures you in this. He tells you what it's about. Then he provides faith and builds that faith and protects that faith and grows that faith in you so you can please him. Now tell me who's the great God. Do you know any other religion that promises this? A God who initiates faith in you and then protects that faith in you through testing puts a different light in this idea of testing doesn't it see the thing is as i was thinking through all of the different tests that we face i think about even our little our little church plant here some of you don't know this but we actually started with six people in the bottom floor of a house. And believe me, we faced a number of tests and trials. Okay? A lot of them. Most of them I did not like. All of them I did not like while I was in them. As I think about being challenged constantly, like, why are you doing this? What are you doing? What is a church? Who is Jesus? Why should I follow Jesus? Why can't I sin? What's the big deal anyways? Why should we plant more churches? Why should we reach the city? Why should we care about the city? And all these tests that came my way, do you know what they did? They clarified things in my own faith in Jesus Christ. Constantly. They clarified all of our faiths, I think. For those who were with us for a good portion of that, that testing, now we look back and we go, man, that was really good for us. 
So even as a church, I think this works. And you know what? I don't believe it's going to be getting that much easier. I think we're just going to continually face tests. But here's the thing. I don't think God's going to test us because He hates us. Because He's trying to squash what He's doing in this city. I think He really wants to use us. I think He wants this church to be full of faithful people who have been tested like crazy so that we can help others who are in a time of testing. So we can prove again that Jesus is worthwhile, that he's good. Some, someone says, like, what, how do we know Jesus exists? That, that there are churches in this city that, that people can point to and say, go check it out, and then tell me that Jesus doesn't exist. Even if you don't believe what they believe, they believe what they believe. And they are not afraid to say it. One of the writers says, actually, that First Peter is, is, is like a, a missionary document. He said about the New Testament, the New Testament, which is all the, all, the, all the stuff that's written after Jesus Christ. The New Testament is a collection of missionary documents written to missionary situations. And I think this is, again, why Jesus tests those who are his missionaries. We've always said that, that Jesus is gathering a big band of missionaries. This is what you've come here. We haven't called you to come here to consume. If you don't know Jesus, we would invite you to know Jesus. We invite you to turn your life over to Jesus. Ask Him to reign in your life and rule your life. But then, if you believe that and you say, Jesus Christ, you can have my life, what Jesus then, I believe, does is He saves you for a mission. And that mission means you are now a missionary that goes and proclaims about how good Jesus is. But in order to do that well, friends, you will likely have to be severely tested. There's really no way around this. Personally, this works as well. What personal tests are you facing if you're not part of Urban Grace? What are you facing? And how have you responded to that? Have you been angry at God because you think He doesn't love you? You think He's forgotten about you? You think He's neglected you? You think He's mean? Can you see, friends, He's not mean? If He was mean, He would leave you alone. But He doesn't leave you alone. He initi- You're here, aren't you? He initiated. He drew you in somehow. He wants you to hear this. The last part, and by the way, for those of you who are used to me going through every verse, uh, there's just so much in here you can't cover it. But the last part is, why is hope like this better? I'm not going to spend very much time at all. But some would say, I'd rather have it the old way. (laughs) I'd rather have... Life without faith. And this is why Peter would say, hey, wait a second, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Listen to this. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. You look in the Old Testament, that's the majority part of your Bible. That's literally about this. This part of your Bible. 
This is what the prophets were doing there, trying to point people to Jesus, even though they didn't have a clear picture. And so the prophets were like, what are we doing this for? Why are we preaching this? Why are we talking about this? Why do some of the people die in our camp? Why do we got to go through all these rules? Why do we got to obey all these laws? Do you know why? Because they were serving us. Because this is the pinnacle of God's plan, faith. This is amazing. This is the big hang-up for so many people. It's like it can't possibly be that simple. There are so many loopholes. It's because we have access to God. We have a relationship with God through faith. Through faith. Not through works, not through things we do, not because we can sing songs about Jesus, not because we do good things for Jesus. Because we believe that Jesus is who he says he was. He says he was God who became man. He said he saved you from your sins. That assumes that you need to know you're a sinner. He said he would die for those sins and pay the penalty once and for all. He said he would rise again, thereby conquering death. So that you never had to worry about dying. That that's the least of your worries. Even Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For the Christian, he said, it's actually better after we die. And how do you get this secure hope? How do you receive this hope? How do you feel this hope? I know, it's a, it's a crazy loophole called faith. You believe it. What? That's it? Yes, that's it. That's why it always shocks me that people won't do it. Shocks me that people will not simply take the next step and trust. What does that faith look like? It looks differently for all of us. But it looks like, I don't totally know how this could end, but I'm just going to do it. We trust things all the time. You trusted that that seat would hold you when you sat down. You trusted that you won't have a disease from sitting down on that seat. You trusted that the wheels on your car... Who, who checked their wheels this morning before they drove their car? You trusted that those wheels were on and no one had loosened all the, all the lug nuts on it. We're trusting all the time. Jesus says, just trust in me. Someone could loosen the lug nuts on your wheels. No one can ever take away the faith you have in Jesus. Someone can rig your seat up so that you fall flat on your face. No one can take away your faith in Jesus. Someone can take away your wife, your job, your money, your friends. No one can take away your Jesus. Someone can take away your retirement plan. No one can take away the Christian's retirement plan. No one. Undefiled. Unfading, perfect. And so what would I say to you as we close? I would say, what is stopping you from believing? At any point, whether you're not a Christian, you are a Christian, you were a Christian, you want to be a Christian, what's holding you back? What? What are you looking for that's got to make sense? 
At some point, and I said this last week, at some point you simply have to take the plunge. I remember very distinctly, and this is what faith kind of feels like a lot of the time. I, I, I hate repelling. Has anyone repelled before? Okay, repelling is this really uncomfortable, abnormal, unnatural thing where you, you walk backwards down a cliff while being attached to a rope. I don't know anyone who says that's a natural feeling. Like, it didn't matter how many times I've done it. There's always this unnatural feeling like, actually, I should be falling right about now. And I can't get rid of that feeling in my stomach. Like, I will fall to my death if this rope doesn't hold. Yeah, sometimes faith feels like that. But friends, those ropes can be cut. But your faith can never be destroyed. What's more is Jesus is actively participating in growing that faith. He's doing it right now. And every single one of our tests is going to require the strengthening of our faith. So I want us this morning to take some time. As we come in a family meal, do you know, what, you know what you do when you come up here? This is an act of faith. Okay, you believe in Jesus Christ, but we're asking you to get up out of your seat and proclaim that through partaking in this. That's an act of faith. Some of you don't think very much about when you come forward, but today I want you to think, I am actively going forward and saying, I believe this stuff that he just said. I want that security. I want to feel it again. Jesus, I need your Holy Spirit to fill me full of faith today so that this week I can know in every situation I know where my anchor is. I know that my hope is secure. And so we're going to sing songs. They've been chosen very, very well today. And they're all about Jesus Christ. So I want you to...